But at the end of the day, you do have to distinguish between the job and the task you're there to do and the revenue you're going to generate mm-hmm. and how you're going to do things like improve margin and improve process. But you want to have fun along the way. And I think, you know, I think that's something I really love about our business. It's a fun, constantly changing group of people, set of standards. Innovation is just wildly, you know, present across the, the world. And you're just not doing the same thing every day, which is what I love about what we do. Welcome to Media Sales Confidential, where we get the inside information from some of the world's most respected and innovative leaders. I'm Matt Bartles, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Jason Wagenheim, President and Chief Revenue Officer at BDG and renowned pitmaster. Let's go. (laughs) Hi, Jason. Thanks so much for joining. How are you doing? Matt, so good to be here. I love what you've been doing with the podcast. Congratulations. You've built a, a nice little audience for yourself. No, thank you. Thank you. I've had a blast doing it, and it's been really good getting to know and connect with folks across the board. Now, you in particular, you've had an illustrious career at some of the major media organizations over the years, from News Corp to Condé Nast to Time Inc., back to Condé Nast, and now BDG. I know that you have a love for selling media in the industry. Let's go back to some of the earlier influence in your life before you even had a job that led you to this professional career in media sales. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but my dad was a fax machine salesman on the Jersey Shore growing up. And, and he was a great salesman. He was selling fax machines before anybody really knew what it was in the late 70s and 80s. And he had me just always knocking on doors to shovel snow or to rake leaves or Little League Baseball cost $30 and you would get 30 bumper stickers to sell for a dollar a piece so you could make your money back. He'd have me that afternoon after we registered, like standing outside the supermarket, Uh hawking bumper stickers, and I'd keep 10 bucks, he'd keep 20 to help pay for things. We were very middle-class Jersey Shore, and I think sales and just, you know, the street smarts that comes with good selling and creating relationships with people is just something I just always remember. And in high school and college, I just gravitated toward media. Mm -hmm. I liked being in front of a camera or writing a story or, you know, whatever format I could get my hands on, whatever medium I could get my hands on to tell stories. It was, was always very exciting to me. So kind of just led me down a path of, of media sales and editorial and advertising and everything all combined with what we do now. That's great. So from a very early age, Jason, you sounds like you were hustling, persuading, working hard, making things happen. How did that then translate into a career in media sales? I mean, and to go back to the college days, I was the editor-in-chief of the Gamecock Daily Student Newspaper. I started a magazine my senior year. I convinced the board of trustees to kill the yearbook. Remember yearbooks, Matt? Oh, I love yearbooks. Back in the old days? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Well, kids weren't getting their pictures taken and buying yearbooks anymore in the the mid-90s. And we convinced the board of trustees to kill the yearbook and use those funds to fund a general interest lifestyle magazine that we called Garnet and Black Quarterly, or GBQ. We published it four times my senior year. I was the first editor-in-chief. 30 years later, it's still a really successful part of campus life and lifestyle. And, you know, I had such great design experience. We used a program called Quark Express back then, not InDesign mm-hmm. or Photoshop. I had kind of the, the journalism and marketing chops to tell stories using the software of the time. And I just got a job when I graduated. I literally circled a classified ad in the New York Times for a designer at News America Marketing, part uh-huh. of News Corporation. Yep. And my first job was making $24,000 a year working for News Corp's in-store marketing division and the FSI division, sitting behind a computer 10 hours a day, designing the Sunday 
newspaper coupons for the FSI. 60 million of them, you know, went out in newspapers at that time uh, every single Sunday. And I'd be like writing that Kraft macaroni and cheese was 25 cents off and laying those things out. <laughs> so crazy. Big, big time, sexy job out of the gate. I mean, out of the gate, but it got me into New York and it yeah. got me into a big, sexy company like News Corporation. Sure. It was not at all my dream job, yeah. but it got my foot in the door. And once I was in the door, I found great mentors and great colleagues there. Some of them I'm still great friends with now. And there was a, a wonderful woman named, named Hope Bader, who's since passed. She saw the talent in me and as, as a writer and as a storyteller and moved me into a marketing role actually supporting the sales team. So writing the sales collateral, writing big advertiser presentations, going on sales calls. And that was really, you know, a couple of years out of school was when I got my first taste of what it was like to be a frontline sales guy. And I just, I loved it. I love the relationship building. I love the expense account. I love <laughs> being on the road with sellers. Yeah. I loved the, the thrill of closing a deal. All of those things really, really excited me and sort of, I think, truly set me on that path to where I am now in a, in a sales management role. But gosh, it didn't start that way. I was like literally designing coupons and being a graphic designer, but it, it opened a door that led to the, you sure. know, the rest of uh, my 25 year career so far. Sure. So do what you can do to get in and then work your way up to get over. So then you took that. What, how did you leverage that experience into your next role? Well, there was uh, this little thing called uh, the internet that was okay. starting to really blossom in the late 90s. Now we're talking. Yeah. And there was an internet startup called Phase 2 Media. A guy named Richie Glassberg started it. It was a brilliant concept and company. It was ostensibly a digital rep firm for okay. major legacy publishers. And one of the publishers they represented was Dennis Publishing and Maxim. And uh, they recruited me out of News America Marketing to a marketing role there. And within a couple months, I got super close to Lance Ford and Carolyn Kremens and all the people who launched Maxim in the U.S. back in the late 90s and crushed GQ, Esquire, mm -hmm. and then like Playboy and Penthouse. Yeah. Invented the Laddie, Laddie category. It was like an ad age number one magazine, went from zero to $100 million really quickly. Really exciting thing back then. Yeah. And Maxim Online, the website at the time, um, didn't have any leadership. It was just sort of an idea and a place to sell subscriptions. And Maxim hired me away from Phase 2 Media very quickly to actually be the first online ad director for, uh, for the brand. So I was, gosh, 26, 27, 8, 28 years old, launching this thing called Maxim.com into the universe and trying to sell revenue against it. It's a lot of fun and really fully got me into like a sales management so, and sales capacity. So that's a little young, right, to be a sales manager. How did, how did you handle that? I think when you're a manager at any level, whether you're 25 or 45 or 55, you really have to be a problem solver and identify what your salespeople or anyone on your team really needs to solve for. Okay. And when you come in as a boss, when you're demanding reports, when you come in and demanding a certain number of sales calls, you're not earning respect, you're earning fear. Mm -hmm. You're sort of demanding respect. You're not really earning it. Yeah. So my approach was very simple. I had sellers that were in their 30s and 40s, very seasoned. One, I could learn a lot from them. I knew that I would learn a lot from them. And two, how can I help you? What's your problem? If you, if you have a problem just getting a sales meeting, do you have a problem with a marketing executive in our company trying to get a deck done? You deploy me in the place that I can help you be more successful. Uh -huh. How can I eliminate barriers for you? And that was my approach. You know, I had a lot to learn. I didn't really know digital because nobody did. It right. wasn't invented yet. Sure. I barely knew magazines. And I had a great team that really sort of supported me and respected me because that, that was my approach, you sure. know, was to be their partner, not necessarily their commander in chief. Yeah. That, that's interesting. If people are following you 
just because your title, <laughs> that doesn't mean that you're actually doing a whole lot of leading. You know, I really, truly like to lead from behind. Mm -hmm. I don't want to lead from the front. I want to be quietly in the background, pushing people forward, helping them overcome barriers, encourage them to be critical thinkers mm -hmm. and decide their own path. And if they make mistakes, how do they learn from those and not do them again, yeah. but also really celebrate and cheer on their successes, but do it from behind. Yeah. It's a great point you make. Yeah. I mean, there, there is a challenge <clears throat> when you're looking across this of saying, okay, I'm a boss, I'm a partner, or am I friends with people? You can't, it's kind of hard to distinguish between those lines. How are you able to draw those distinctions? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, uh, especially when you're in your late twenties and you're right. working in publishing, which is a very social business. And I was at everybody's wedding. I saw lots of babies being born, you yeah. know, from a distance and celebrated lots of life changes with a lot of my colleagues over the years. We sort of have grown up in the industry, but at the end of the day, you do have to distinguish between the job and the task you're there to do and the revenue you're going to generate mm -hmm. and how you're going to do things like improve margin and improve process. But you want to have fun along the way. And I think you know, I think that's something I really love about our business. It's a fun, constantly changing group of people, set of standards. Innovation is just wildly, you know, present across the, the world. And you're just not doing the same thing every day, which is what I love about what we do. So you take that. Now you're the boss and you say, OK, I've got an opportunity to move along to your next part of your career. What's the what's the next step for you and, and how did you get there? So after I left Dennis Publishing, or I was recruited, I should say, out of Dennis Publishing to go to Condé Nast. That was back in 2004. Mm -hmm. I had literally just gotten married and accepted a job in the same week and delayed my honeymoon so I could start at Condé Nast Traveler under Lisa Hughes. Yeah. She thought that was just awesome that I did that. But I was like, I'm not going to have fun on my honeymoon if <laughs> I'm like thinking about this new job I'm about to start. Let's get started and I'll yeah. take my honeymoon later. But I'll tell you, Condé Nast is really where I matured as a sales executive and really where I had a chance to work on major brands in a major organization under somebody like Lisa Hughes. She was uh, went on to be the publisher of The New Yorker. She's now the CEO of the Philadelphia Inquirer. You know, man, she is. she was just a total publishing pro who taught me my way around a business plan. And it's not just about slinging pages and trying to wrangle ad dollars. How do you really strategize about your accounts, your category road mapping, how do you become a really good marketer, not just a, uh, a publisher or a seller to support the sales organization, leadership qualities and how to run a team? I loved my time with her and we had a good two and a half years together. I was her associate publisher and travel at the same time actually came roaring back after a couple of years off following 9-11. Okay. So to be a Condé Nast traveler in 2004, 2005 was like, I mean, we were at AJ list. We were crushing all of our numbers profitability off the charts was a really good time to be there. So a uh, life lesson there, good timing of when you take jobs and <laughs> which jobs yeah, you're looking at. for sure. Find yourself a good mentor. That's what I had in Lisa well, for sure. That's what I wanted to talk about. So walk, you, walk me through a little bit of what was the mentoring process like. And I'm guessing that you came in as a, a manager, but still a little bit raw, I would imagine. And there's some totally. polishing up that might need to happen. How did that relationship evolve? And, and what was the mentoring process like? Here I am, you know, landing at Condé Nast Traveler right. at Four Times Square. And I had to learn how to pronounce like Hermes and Balenciaga and Louis Vuitton and like understand what the world map looked like. I mean, it was completely culture shock for me. I had to start wearing a tie again. I almost strangled myself the first time I had to like tie a tie. <laughs> so it was beyond the culture shock. I think, you know, to your question about mentoring, 
I don't think you can ever ask somebody to mentor you. I've had people say to me, will you be my mentor? And I'm like, you know, it just doesn't happen that way. Mm -hmm. It's got to be much more organic. And I'm not looking for dozens and dozens of mentees. I'm looking to have great relationships with the people that I work with that I can learn from as much as I might be able to teach them. And being Lisa's shadow and her number two, you know, uh, uh, for her being my mentor, I think happened very organically. I knew when to listen, when to really speak up. My opinions mattered, but I also knew my place within the organization. I knew I was very self-aware of what I had to learn. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when mentorship really works well, is when you are open-minded, you organically find a mentor to help push you along in your career, somebody who's going to cheer for you, but also really like sit you down and tell you when you're being an idiot. If you're going to approach it from that, that direction, you can be very successful. Whereas if you're otherwise resistant or think you know it all. Does that make sense? It does. It does. So being able to receive feedback, obviously, is a critical component of growth in any any individual or executive. For sure, it sounds like she matched up with you nicely from your previous experiences of wanting to be a partner, not just work within a, a like a boss relationship. So you took that. And how did that impact the way you've led people going forward? With all bosses in your life and mentors, you know, colleagues up and down an organization, you learn so much about the qualities that excite you about that person or the position that they're in. You also learn what flaws they have or things that maybe turn you off in being a manager. And those things are equally important to realize. I think whether it was Lisa or many other mentors and bosses I've had, you know, since you, you sort of like understand both of those qualities. Like I worked for somebody at Condé Nast and I was like, wow, like he does all this stuff really great, but he's really terrible at this thing. And I just don't want to be like that. And that's a learning moment as much as, you know, the other side of it, you know, Lisa and I still see each other often. We saw each other for dinner last week, actually in New York. And we, we say to each other that we're on each other's board of directors. If you were a company and you had a board of directors, you have maybe seven to 10 people that are your closest advisors, very safe place to be able to talk to them and share problems. If you're having insecurities about things or whatever, you can always just sort of put it out to your board. So Lisa and I had a board meeting over dinner uh, a week ago and we sort of exchanged successes and, and, and challenges that we're experiencing. And it's so valuable when you, when you have that in your life and, and a person to connect with that really is cheering you on, but also has the tools in their toolbox to help get you where you want to be. So, so great relationship. Why'd you leave? I think I left because I've always been really entrepreneurial Okay, and I wanted to hit it big with something on the internet. I just, everybody was still talking about this internet thing, but magazines and TV and radio and all those other things mattered much more back in 2006 when I left. Facebook was barely a thing. And I left because I had an itch to scratch to do something much bigger, more entrepreneurial, and also maybe strike it big. You know, there was many, many, many millions of dollars of potential opportunity and equity that came with that. So I felt like I was young enough in my career to take a bet, which is what it was. Sure. And it turned out to be a bad one, but it, you know, got back to Condé Nast and was able to do great things once I got back. So you come back and are you coming back in the same capacity at Condé? Is it a different role, a different brand? I I was an associate publisher at Condé Nast Traveler and I came back for what was ostensibly an associate publisher level position, running corporate sales under Richard Beckman. And uh, we had a whole great corporate sales team that was charged with several billion dollars worth of revenue starting to really accelerate digital sales at the time as well, working on massive corporate contracts for L'Oreal, P&G, LVMH, all the big guys, mm-hmm. and really being the corporate face of the house of brands that Condé Nast is. Best job ever? Other than this one, 
I would say, at BDG. My best job ever was probably when I got promoted to Vanity Fair from corporate. After a, a few years, I moved on to work with Edward Menekeski as associate publisher of Vanity sure. Fair. That was 2009-ish, eight or nine. The access, the prestige. I mean, you're hanging out at that Oscar party and mm-hmm. you're like bumping elbows with like Ron Howard and Steven Spielberg and like, oh, there's Madonna and Christina Aguilera. And it's cool. Like, I mean, it was fun advertisers like flocked to campaign Hollywood, the big Oscar moment that, you know, Vanity Fair throws every year, the prestige and the access of that magazine and that brand commands is just exceptional. And there's nothing like it. It was so fun. And Edward was great. We had a great team and Vanity Fair really, really mattered in a big way back then. You take that Vanity Fair then, I guess, and you get recruited to go somewhere else. Yeah, so Time Inc. was calling a bunch. They they wanted me to go run SI, and I said no. And then there were some other things that came up, and they got me to say yes to Entertainment Weekly to be publisher. So I'd wanted to be publisher. I'd always just wanted to be at the top of the masthead. Yeah, you know, I didn't even know as a kid like what a publisher did or was. I just knew it was the name at the top of the masthead in the magazine. I'm like, I don't know what that guy does, but I want to do that one day. I yeah. want to be there. I want to run a. I want to run a brand. And uh, this was my opportunity to do it. So I went over to Time Inc. in 2010 as publisher of VW. What a great business and squarely and where my passions are with entertainment and celebrity and everything I sort of grew up doing. And it was a, it was a, a great opportunity, you know, while it lasted. Why didn't, you're probably going to ask me why, why I left. Why didn't it work out? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, there's a theme here. I'm yeah. not just coming across. <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know, uh, Timing wasn't for me. And I'll, I'll just, I'll, you know, it's far enough behind me now I can put it on the table. What, great people and yeah. incredible brands. I just found it to be fairly bureaucratic with lots and lots of layers and decision makers and committees and meetings. And to be an entrepreneur within that environment or to, you know, really take risks and move business forward, I found it challenging. Mm-hmm. At Condé Nast, still a big company, privately held, you know, you're a publisher, you're at a brand, you're really the king of your castle, you're creating your own destiny with your team, you're running your own P&L, and you're moving your business forward. And you don't have to sort of worry about the rest. Sure. Timing was a little different. And, and you know, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's super collaborative. And there was, again, a lot of great talent there and people I worked with and for. I had an opportunity, I, I wasn't loving it. Condé Nast called and said, why don't you come back and be publisher of Glamour? Yeah. After nine months of uh, being at EW. And I said, yes. And I felt terrible about leaving timing behind, but I wasn't happy. I wasn't being fulfilled with what I was able to do and not do at EW. And it was just a relatively easy move for me to make, to go back to what I considered home. If that wasn't the right culture, what does the right culture look like for you? That's a great question. That's a fair question. I love to work in an environment where you get rewarded for taking risks. You get rewarded for failing fast but at least trying. Mm -hmm. You have a culture of yes, not a culture of no. You have people within the organization that are just innovative at their core. They're constantly searching for the next and the new and the big. They love ideas that have never been done before and they figure out how to do them. And a little bit more like moving forward faster. And that's the environment that we have at BDG now. That's the culture I try and foster with our team. And that's where I feel like I can most thrive, you know? Yeah. What was it that allowed the door to remain open for you so that you can leave and come back home? And I don't know if I can put my finger on it other than to say 
you know, I do think the old adage that our parents always taught us is like the two most important days of your career or a job is the day you walk in and the day you leave. Mm -hmm. What happens in between is almost not as important. And I always left on a really good note. I gave proper notice. I made, I made sure things were super buttoned up. I checked off with everybody that mattered in the company to let them know why I was leaving or what I was looking for. I never made it personal. I didn't burn any bridges. Okay. They wanted me back. And, and I was very grateful for that. And it made me even work harder for them. Yeah. So now you're in the biggest role, I would imagine, of your career so far. You're walking back in. And yep. what is it that you're going to do differently this time that's going to make it really, really stick and, and go up with the, like a rocket ship? Yeah, I mean, Glamour is such a massive business for Condé Nast for many, many years, obviously in print and newsstand and, you know, digitally eventually. And what a great opportunity to really improve upon what was already a fabulous business. So it's like, how do you take this thing that's relatively mature and grow it? And a lot of it had to do with improving and continuing the innovation that they were showing, the marketing programs, winning new advertisers, growing market share. I mean, all the things that any publisher would do as part of their playbook was all part of the strategy, you know, the day I walked in the door. I worked for a group publisher that was overseeing Glamour along with a handful of other magazines, and I was the publisher. And I had inherited mostly his team. And I think there's many, many ways to be successful. Yeah. I had a version mm -hmm. and a playbook that I had learned and written over the years, and he had his. They were just drastically different. Sure. And it was very clear that Glamour was way too big to fail. I was sitting at lunch in Milan during a fashion week mm. uh, at the Dolce & Gabbana restaurant. And I got a call from the CEO to, uh, to, that I had to take, excuse myself from the table. And Chuck Townsend was on the phone and said, um, we're going to remove you from Glamour. I'd only been there for three months. And come back home, get mm. on a plane right away. We have another assignment for you. And um, Glamour is just going to stay under the former management and you're going to come back and run something else for us, but just come on home. So they made that decision for us. And two days later, I'm sitting in the lobby at the Millennium Hotel across the street from uh, Four Times Square, wearing my best suit, not knowing who I would have to see or what I would have to do. And I got a call from the head of HR who said, are you nearby? <laughs> we need to see you right away. I said, okay, I'm across the street. She said, we'd like you to go meet with Anna. <laughs> okay. All right. And I said, I said, that sounds promising. Wintour? Wintour? <laughs> so I went back and I met with Anna and they talked to me about going to Teen Vogue and they had big ideas for Teen Vogue and what they thought the brand should and could be doing. I met with Amy Astley, the editor in chief, and I found a great home for the next four years as publisher of Teen Vogue. And it was an awesome career move. It all worked out. Mm -hmm. The glamour thing was a speed bump. Yeah. you know, on the way to the rest of my career and very grateful for the time I had there with that team. It was, it was really, really awesome. And it sounds like it worked out pretty good at the Teen Vogue stage of what was going on. And how has that paid dividends now? So when I, when I uh, left Teen Vogue, because Teen Vogue was rolling up under Vogue and I really was able to like write my own plan. I was, I was offered the opportunity to do other things in the company, but I decided to take a package and leave. Okay. And I can talk very openly about this because I think it's important for anyone listening that might be in some career transition or thinking about what's next. Mm -hmm. Here we are back in 2015. The internet is like capital I, a thing now and beyond, right? Like yeah. we're, we're five to seven years into like a real internet era of publishing at that, at that moment. And I decided with the package that they very graciously offered me to leave, I could reset my whole career. It was very important to me to use this opportunity and the leash the runway that the severance package provided me to sort of maybe take a lower salary, mm -hmm. to rethink my lifestyle, 
and how I spent money and really have a mid mid career reset, which uh-huh. is which is what I did and which is what ultimately got me to BDG. And now things are going great. They're just great. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. man, that's 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 an that's a hell of a ride. Yeah, it's, it's a ride. A hell of a ride. So I mean, just thinking back, so you're sitting there with your with your severance package or whatever. What was the criteria that you were thinking about? Like what made you say, okay, not this, that? Yeah, just for me at that time, what it meant was not being a publisher of a magazine. Okay. Like full stop. Yep. I don't want to attach myself for the rest of my career to something that relies so heavily on ink on paper yep. and what advertisers and readers are willing to spend their time and money on as it relates to that. I wanted to get myself squarely in something TV, linear, something that had a big digital footprint, mm-hmm. something that represented a place I could be successful and be part of growth yep. over the next 20 years. Well, it sounds like you're squarely in that place right now with BDG. What are the, what are the, the new responsibilities and how is, how is this really, all of that collective ride, how has that now led you to this place of growth with BDG and, and the, the new leadership mantras that you've established? Well, I, I love what we're building at BDG because we don't have like any baggage. We don't have hundred year old, you know, contracts and magazines and things that are hard to pivot away from. Okay. We are able to be super nimble and entrepreneurial and just rip the company apart every year and put it back together again yeah. the way other companies can't. So that's what I've loved about the last five years. I mean, when I started, we were a $25 million business. And we're now doing north of 125 on a path to 200 plus next year. And we've written a very clear plan, a very clear plan to get to three, four, five hundred million dollars in the next four to five years. And we'll do it organically by growing our existing footprint, but we'll continue to acquire brands uh, along the way. So what are you doing then to prepare for that growth? How are you thinking about your organizational structure, your incentive structure, your, you know, where you're going to place your bets next? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of places where we'll definitely continue to place our bets like we have this year. Commerce is absolutely one of them. I think the the world of content and commerce converging is getting closer and closer by the minute. All of us in, in our space are trying various different ways to approach this. There's mixed success that we're showing. We haven't, none of us have quite nailed it yet. Yeah. I think that's absolutely something we'll continue to lean into. We're rethinking our video strategy and how we can monetize where a lot of the money is falling right now. And that's something we spend a lot of time on. We're very interested in how publishers just tell stories online. We really have invested heavily in our CMS to be able to tell like big, beautiful stories on mobile with great photography and storytelling that is very differentiated. And that that wins us a lot of business and and also reader engagement. And then socially. What's your biggest challenges that you're that you're really saying, man, I'm not sure. I know this is going to be a challenge. I'm kind of prepared for it, but not 100 percent sure. Yeah, well, look, I mean, everybody in our space is very good at doing mid to upper funnel awareness consideration type of like marketing, right? And creating campaigns around like, let's create awareness and create some sizzle and buzz for your brand. Other things can we can worry about conversion with everything we've been through in the pandemic in the last 18 months. There's just a lot of pressure on conversion. There's a lot of pressure on performance. So we're thinking about, and and content and commerce is a way to solve this challenge. How do we connect the dots between upper and lower funnel and and tighten that gap? And I think our biggest challenge is actually conversion and performance when you're looking at a lower funnel KPI. So we want to make sure we're constantly innovating and inventing products that solve for that. And that's a lot of how I spend my time with the team. Well, isn't that going to be more, a little more difficult here in 2022, getting people to invest in lower funnel stuff with the supply chain shortage and everything that's going on? 
Yeah, I hope. I mean, look, that that has put a bit of a abrupt halt on our Q4 pacing and our pipeline. Like everybody's going to have a Everybody. shitty Q4. Just right. wait for it. You saw what happened with Snap this week. Earnings calls like just that's the beginning. Like it's going to be a tough couple months ahead. I do think and I'm not an economist, but I have read a lot. And the consensus seems to be that this is probably a short term speed bump on the way to 22. Mm-hmm. That's sometime in the middle to late Q1. Things will catch back up products and toys and diapers and all those things like cars and phones that you want to buy will be available. Consumers certainly have lots of money in their pocket nowadays because they haven't been able to spend it the last 18 months. So they're ready to spend. So I think and hope supply will meet demand in the next three to six months and we'll be back on track. There you go. And there's Jason Wagenheim's predictions for 2022. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. Okay. Let's talk about this. I've done a lot of cooking, a lot of grilling, Some people call me a grill master, but they're just being kind. What's the difference between a grill master and a pit master? You know, that's a good question. I think a pit master knows his way around a smoker or what we would call a cooker. And a grill master might know his way around like a propane tank or a charcoal grill, which is great too. But I do like to smoke meat. I do a great brisket that takes about a day to make. I got, I actually have 10 racks of ribs on my Traeger wood pellet grill right now, Let's go. <laughs> um, which I'm smoking for something this weekend. I think that's fundamentally the difference. Like it's a, if you're like a Kansas city barbecue competition fanatic, you're, you're in the pit. There you go. There you go. And so what bigger picture, what drives you to want to cook? So I just, I love it. I love the technique. I love the science behind it. I love the science of fire management and keeping things at a certain heat. This is an interesting you know, topic for a second. I created a, a barbecue sauce brand called East End Cowboy. We sell it at all the Citarellas in the city and out in the Hamptons and all the local farm stands out east. Sure. And it kind of was born in the backyard as a little side hustle that turned into like a real business. And at this point in my career, you know, I just turned 48 years old and I think I really value what a side hustle or a hobby can mean for somebody in their career, especially through a time like we've been the last 18 months. To have this, that's not just work has defined me. My career has defined me. My personal relationships have been my work relationships for the past 25 years. This is something that's very exclusively different and mine and very entrepreneurial. And it's not about slinging ads. You know what I mean? And I just, I love it and I'm growing it. And uh, it's, it's been fun to have on the side. You took it to another level then. I mean, we're not just talking about cooking in the backyard. You've got a whole brand and you're making barbecue sauce. <laughs> yeah. And selling it and distributing yeah, it. Yeah, check out check out East End. I'll do I'll do a shameless plug. Yeah. Eastendcowboy.com. You can follow on Instagram at east.end.cowboy. Okay. And uh, we've got a honey peach flavor and an apple jalapeno. I we make it all ourselves in a commercial kitchen in Southampton. We use all local ingredients from the farmers around here, like local apples, jalapenos, local peaches. Okay. And we blend them all up and put them back in the jar and sell it. All right. This is what I'm talking yeah. about. Jason there you go. Wagenheim, the sauce boss. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> the new sauce boss. Now there go was, buy my sauce. There was Mention a... code Matt Bartels and receive 20% off. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Let's talk about some of your career tenants or mandates. So we get into um, conversations of what are your leadership mandates? What are the things that are non-negotiable things that you like to instill in your teams? Yeah, I think I think the first thing which uh, I think generationally we might be losing sight of is the importance of just being an active participant in your job. And by that, I mean, lean into meetings, speak up, have a voice, have an opinion, be a critical thinker, like 
don't just run into your boss's office and say, what should I do? Mm -hmm. Actually stop for a second and think about, maybe you should think about what you should do and make a recommendation. Mm -hmm. The people who are successful in our company and who I've been successful with over the years have those qualities of like, just really being a contributor to what's happening day to day. Other people are more passive. They're more wallflowers. They maybe want to punch a clock and sit behind a computer all day designing Sunday newspaper coupons. And there are jobs for people like that and they're, they're not unimportant. But in our company, those that really advance are the ones that are critically thinking contributors. Okay. How do you create an environment for people to feel like it's okay to try to push and provide those insights and, and challenge and think a little bit out of the box versus worried about feeling foolish or not being heard. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I actually, this is a personal challenge of my own and a place where I have failed my teams over the years. Sometimes I'm impatient or I could like just be a real dick in like some kind of feedback session. And I, yeah. I think I'm being direct, but it maybe is coming across as too sarcastic sure. or uh, not landing like I think it is in my head. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm guilty of that. And I'm trying to get better at, you know, giving feedback and creating that environment. But I really do encourage people to be okay making mistakes, to take risks. Mm-hmm. I mean, gosh, I've, I've probably had, you know, a thousand at bats on different programs in my career. I'll be lucky to be batting two or 300. I hate viscerally when we find ourselves in a land of no. And mm-hmm. when you put something out into the universe at a, at a conference room, some people will say to you, these are all the reasons this won't work. And that's their first reaction. And that's just, that, that's not okay. Yeah. I want people to say, here's all the reasons or ways this can work. And if it doesn't, maybe we'll get to that, but it should not be the place you start. And that's the kind of culture we try and foster. And that's how I like my team to think. Yeah. Okay. Participate at work, be eager and enthusiastic. What are your other tenets? I think we're, as a society, losing what the value of likability really can do for somebody. I want to like the people I work with. I spend more time with with them than I do with my family or my girlfriend or my kid. Yeah. As sad as it is, we spend more time with our, our colleagues than we do with our family and friends. And I want to like you uh, first and foremost. And I think that people don't realize how easy it is to be likable um, in, in business. And by doing all the things we're talking about, you really can get further ahead by just smiling, being enthusiastic. You know, it, it goes a long way. I want to be excited that you just walked into my office and you want to talk to me. I don't want to be like, oh God, here she comes again yeah. and have a pit in my stomach. And it's an easy thing that people, even if they're not good at it, they should learn how to fake it because it does matter. Be likable. Don't be a curmudgeon. What else? <laughs> Hustle. Just work hard. That's a no brainer. I've always been a hustler from the time I was slinging Little League bumper That's stickers. Right. So, you know, just get out and go make your buck. I, I love a, I love as a question for an icebreaker for sellers is how'd you make your first dollar? I almost and some that. of them, <laughs> some of them will tell you, oh well, I was when I was twenty five and I sold a big campaign of Rolex. And I'm like, no, what'd you do when you were eleven? Right. What'd you do when you were fourteen? What what job did you get your working papers for when you were fourteen? Like, are you a hustler? Right. You know? Right. So that's important. And then, you know, lastly, it's an old ancient Wagenheim family proverb, but I really believe that we are not curing cancer, solving the world's problems, solving political crises and pandemics. We are selling advertising. We are selling great marketing programs. We are selling reader engagement. Nobody will die if we fail. So when people are freaked out and we're in some crisis moment, and we've all had a lot of them, I tell my people and I tell myself, everything's going to be okay. And if it's not, don't worry, 
we'll figure it out. Yeah. And I just live by that and it keeps me calm and it puts things into perspective for me. And, um, I have people running into my office crying and I'm like, did anybody die? Okay. Is anybody really, really, really hurt and about to die? Like, okay, no. Okay. Start again. Sure. Perspective, <laughs> a little perspective goes a long way. So participate, be eager and enthusiastic at work. Be likable. Easier said than done for some people. <laughs> Hustle, get after it, treat everyone the same and everything is going to be okay. It's going to work out. We can figure it out <laughs> together, right? That whole, be Pretty a partner. Much. There you go. Be a, Okay. This is fantastic. Jason, thanks so much for joining us today on Media Sales Confidential with Matt Bartles. As always, it was great to have you. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Never miss an episode and share this with your friends. Thank you for listening. And that's the Inside Scoop. Okay, since our recording, I have had the good fortune of trying some of the East End Cowboy barbecue sauces. I got both the honey peach and the apple jalapeno. And let me tell you, they are killer. My family loves them. And they're so good that I intend to showcase those in the backyard barbecue throwdown showdown that we're going to be having. I highly recommend it. I did get a five out of five star rating on the Bartles Barbecue score.